So Money Episode 60, Tim Ferriss. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Hey everyone, welcome back to So Money. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. So here's a funny story. A couple of weeks ago, I was, uh, well, I was doing a victory lap backstage at the Today Show. I was in a great mood. So Money, this podcast had just surpassed 100,000 downloads. And, you know, I was uh, going around giving high fives to everyone because that's how I roll. And um, a kind woman was staring at me um, and uh, overheard what I was saying about, uh, you know, my podcast and that I've had the great fortune of having so many amazing guests and the popularity has just blown me away. Um, Well, she turned to me and she said, you know, who would be a great guest on your podcast is Tim Ferriss. And I looked at her and I was like, yes, well, of course he'd be a great guest on my podcast, as would, you know, Oprah and the president and the Dalai Lama. Uh, because I mean, Tim Ferriss is the multiple best-selling author of, you know, four-hour work week, four-hour body, the four-hour chef. He's an angel investor. He is a, an uber successful podcaster. I mean, I bow to him. I sense he's pretty busy. He's pretty busy these days. Doesn't know who I am. So, um, you know, I, I thanked her for thinking big for me. Um, but I, I was like, you know, I, I think, I think, you know, that might sort of a pie-in-the-sky dream for me at this point. And she said, well, you know what? I'm going to text him for you right now. And she pulled out her iPhone, and this divine woman, her name is Tracy D'Annunzio. Tracy, if you're listening, I'm sending you a big basket of some sort of amazing, delicious something or other from Brooklyn all the way to the West Coast soon. Keep your eye out for it. Tracy D'Annunzio, founder of TradeZ.com, T-R-A-D-E-S-Y.com. It's a site where you can go and you know, sell your designer clothing, handbags. A lot of women are now going there to sell their dresses, their wedding dresses. Um, she said, I'll text you for him right now because as it turns out, Tim Ferriss is one of her business partners. Hmm. Well, I watched this woman... Uh, text away, gliding her thumbs over her iPhone in disbelief. That was me. And lo and behold, before I knew it, Tim Ferriss is emailing me. What? Yes. He's emailing me to say that, uh, hey, Farnoosh, uh, you know, Tracy suggested that we get in touch. Uh, how can I be of service to you? That Those were actually his exact words. And I... I <laughs> If I sound shocked, it's because I, I think I'm still in shock, even though I've actually now done the interview with Tim. I, I'm having a bit of a surreal moment. And so this interview has happened and it is about to be unleashed. And Tim is an amazing human being. I don't have to go through his uh, long list of accolades and accomplishments. And a few takeaways from our time together. This interview actually runs relatively longer than most of my interviews. It's about 45 minutes long, but it is well worth every second. You'll discover how Tim in his early years, starting out after college, how volunteering his time helped him establish connections and opportunities uh, that uh, were priceless, that later went on to really catalyze his career. He talks about how Billy Joel, yep, rock star, singer Billy Joel, influenced 
him many, many years ago to become the man that he aspires to be today. And where Tim prefers to invest his money and why. Also, because I'm feeling generous and because I'm so excited to be bringing you Tim Ferriss, I've decided to uh, personally purchase five book bundles, five Tim Ferriss ebook bundles. Each bundle will include an electronic copy of the four hour work week, the four hour body, and the four hour chef. Hop over to so many podcast.com, click on Tim's podcast page, and learn how to win one of these bundles. And so without further ado, here is our guest of the day, Tim Ferriss. Tim Ferriss, welcome to So Money. Such a privilege to have you on the show. Uh, The pleasure and privilege is all mine. So thank you for having me. Yes. Well, I have to start with kind of a weird story. So I've known you're going to come on the show for a couple of weeks now. And in the run up to that, I've been reading, consuming, watching, listening to everything I can get my hands on that, uh, that you're in, that you're commenting on. And so, of course, naturally, last night I go to betting what happens. I dream about Tim Ferriss. (laughs) But what was even weirder, so I'm in your kitchen, there's like a holiday party going on, you're making drinks for everybody. You're Tim Ferriss, we all know you're Tim Ferriss, but you are in Justin Timberlake's body. (laughs) So whatever, I don't know, I I don't analyze dreams. I do remember my dreams very vividly. That's kind of one of my weirdnesses, but but I never know what they mean. So I'll just let the audience figure that out. And if audience, you know what that means? Write to me. I'd like to know what this means. Well, you know, I want people to write to you as well because this is actually not the first time I've heard about someone having dreams involving me and Justin Timberlake. No way. <laughs> what? <laughs> On Twitter, someone was mentioning that he and I were running through some type of like a maze with machetes cutting through the <laughs> underbrush. So if someone can connect the dots as to why... I seem to appear in dreamscapes with Justin Timberlake. That would also be very fascinating for me to hear. And here I am thinking I was alone and singular in my <laughs> in my amazing dream about Justin Timberlake, whom I adore. I love Justin Timberlake. So it's probably a good thing. I'll take it. I'll take it. So Tim Ferriss, you know, don't need to give uh, my audience here any kind of uh, long-winded uh, explanation of who you are and all your accolades. But the truth of the matter is you wear a lot of different titles. You're a life hacker, human guinea pig, best-selling author, more recently a wildly successful podcaster. You've also been called the most interesting man in the world, (laughs) uh, which is spectacular. Uh, But like many of us, uh, you started out graduating from college, making $40,000 a year, driving a used van, um, whose, I believe the the seats were stolen at one point. Um, That's right. But the differentiating factor, I think, for you and correct me if I'm wrong, is that one of the things that you did that did that really helped you stand out and really create a platform for you to then go on to become very successful was that you volunteered. You weren't chasing the money so much. You were chasing the skills, the experience. Can you take us down memory lane a little bit back to like late 99, 2000 year when you kind of were out of school, getting your your grounding in your career and the the, the road less taken that you took? Definitely. I landed in Silicon Valley and knew no one. I mean, I really had no network to speak of, no friends. And just to just to step back even further, before I got that job, I think people might enjoy that story because the the thinking laterally, I think, is is very similar. So I 
decided after visiting the San Francisco Bay Area to be interviewed for a job that whether or not I got the job at that company, which I didn't get because the company imploded, that I wanted to move to the Bay Area. And uh, at the time, I couldn't afford to stay at a hotel, so I stayed at a kickboxing gym. It was cheaper for me to pay for a fly-in training camp at a Thai kickboxing gym on Clementina at the time, which is a very gnarly neighborhood between 5th and 6th and between Howard and Folsom and SF. And I lived on the second floor on a bunk bed. And uh, I, I couldn't afford a proper ticket, so it was a standby ticket that I used. And I just wore my suit, which I realized later nobody wears here. But I wore my suit and I would, cl- I would uh, wear my dress shoes and clean my clothing in the sink that was on the second floor. And ultimately... That is how I ended up filling my schedule with other interviews and got this job as a, as a low-paid technical sales guy that you mentioned for the, you know, the, the 40 grand a year with, mm-hmm. with some equity that ended up being worth nothing. The way that I built the network was, uh, as you said, very simply through primarily volunteering. And what I realized was I didn't have much to offer in terms of trades. It's not like I could ping the... Uh, the icons of Silicon Valley and invite them out to lunch. And by the way, people listening, uh, if you're in that position asking someone out to lunch so you can buy them coffee to pick their brain, doesn't really work because they're getting thousands of those invites. And the way I circumvented that was by volunteering at the time for an organization, I'm not sure if it's still around, called SVASE, which was the Silicon Valley Association of Startup Entrepreneurs. And of course, there are many others. There's Ty, the Indus Entrepreneur, and uh, there, there's a new organization just about every week out here. But I volunteered as a, a ticket taker or, or a ticket dispenser, I don't remember, for, the, for one of their main events where they would invite speakers to be on a panel of some type and they would have long discussions and charge for attendance and so on. And I just, I, I, I just did a good job. And when I say did a good job, what I mean is I did what they asked me to do when they asked me to do it. And it's astonishing how quickly you can rise to the top as a volunteer if you do just that. Because a lot of people who attend these events as volunteers feel like they don't have to do a good job because they're not getting paid. So it's very easy to, to distinguish yourself. And then I asked for more responsibility. And I would do more than I was asked to do. So if I saw that the iced tea needed refilling. I would go refill it myself if it wasn't getting done. And that very quickly made me one of the few reliable volunteers for this organization. And uh, eventually when I felt the timing was right, I asked if I could attend one of the planning meetings for a major event, one of the main events where they invite these speakers. And uh, continued to help to the best of my ability since I had a full-time job. And eventually I they asked if who wanted to run the next event, and there were, there were people far more qualified but also far busier than I was. And I raised my hand, and everyone was kind of shocked, and I was like, I'll, I'll run it. I think I could do it. I've watched these events. I've been at every one since X point in time. And that gave me the opportunity to then invite speakers I wanted to develop personal relationships with. So I used the platform, the credibility of this not-for-profit, or it might, might have been a for-profit, but the organization to invite people to speak who would otherwise never return a phone call or an email of mine. And the main draw for people who are wondering was not just speaking at the organization, but the fact that S-Face would invite journalists from different media outlets, whether, you know, the CNNs, Forbes, and so on of the, of the world. 
And that is how I was able to get people like, uh, I basically made a laundry list of the, the people I found fascinating. So the creator of the Pet Rock, the founder of Cliff Bar, uh, one of the gents, Ed Bird, who was the first to, to monetize or commercialize creatine monohydrate as a sports supplement, uh, Jack Canfield, co-creator of Chicken Soup for the Soul, and the list went on and on. Trip Hawkins, co-founder of Electronic Arts, or maybe the founder. And uh, those relationships over time, uh, some of them became very, very instrumental in my success. Specifically, Jack Canfield was the one who many, many years later introduced me to the newly minted agent, former superstar editor, uh, who became my agent and sold the four-hour workweek, despite being rejected 27 times before it actually got sold. Uh, and what I would encourage people to do is, is, is explore that volunteering space, which is really just unpaid work. View it as network building and play the long game. And what I mean by that is uh, you don't have to stay in touch with really busy people just to keep in touch. That's a bad move, I think. So emailing Jack Canfield every other week to say hi and send him a link to an article would have burned that bridge. It would have, it would have, it would have really made him mute to any type of, of requests or emails. And so I would genuinely only email him uh, once or twice a year, maybe, if I had a question that legitimately I felt he could answer in one or two sentences and he was the highest uh, qualified person in my life to answer that question. And that's it. And that's enough. You don't have to keep in touch. You have to make a very good first impression. That's your job. I think it was Zig Ziglar who said that you want to be a go-giver in life before you are a go-getter. And it sounds like you really um, kind of you, you followed that doctrine a little bit in your 20s, which really got you so much in return without really you expecting it, right? You were just kind of doing what you thought was different and exceptional and good work and you were on time and you went above and beyond. You anticipated people, small things. It's the small things, right? And made some pretty amazing connections as a result. We actually yeah, had Jack Canfield exactly on the right. show recently, so I know the power of Jack Canfield. Yeah, and he's, he's a sweetheart of a guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a sweetheart of a guy. And the other thing I would say, and feel free to... To, to redirect the flow here, but I think it's an important point, which is you don't have to network or develop false friendships with people who are really, really good at what they do or high profile who are jerks. You do not have to do that because there are, within any given industry or space, there are going to be people who try very deliberately to be the best at what they do, but also to be genuinely good human beings. And I think Jack is, is one of those examples. And it's it, just as you would only, you hear this very often in entrepreneurship, only hire A players. If you have to wait, then wait, but only hire A players. I feel like that's true with networking. You should, uh, you should not compromise uh, because you are the average of the five people you associate with most. And you have to choose those people very, very carefully. Absolutely. I'd love if you would take us back even further, Tim. Before you were in college, you grew up on Long Island. I'd love to hear one of your earliest money memories, um, positive or negative, but was a memory that you still remember. It's vivid in your mind. It was influential in how now as an adult, as an investor, as a businessman, you make decisions. That is a good question. Let's see. The first, there were two that came to mind. One was from my first ever job, and then the second was from uh, actually three. I'll, I'll give you; they're very short. So the first one was my very first ever job, which was working at a place called Snowflake, 
on Long Island. <laughs> this is in Amagansett. It was this, it was an ice cream shop. How old were you? Uh, I think I was fourteen or fifteen, uh, young. And I, and I should say that's my first kind of official job. It wasn't I'd done odd jobs here and there beforehand, but my first official job. And I I I, I think I was fired. I was fired, and I think I was fired after a few days or maybe a week or two. <laughs> it did not last very long because I was I was very. Uh, I corrected the process, so the the way that things were being done was very inefficient, and I just realized if you if you reordered a few things that you could you know, finish in whatever it was a third of the time, a quarter of the time. So I'd finish my cleanup responsibilities, and then I would uh, <laughs> I would you know practice my my martial arts moves or whatever the hell I was obsessed with at the time, like in the back parking lot. And needless to say, the boss did not appreciate this. And, and his way of punishing <laughs> me was to ask me to clean everything again, even though it had just been cleaned. And this did not create a great relationship between us. Uh, and he didn't want the system to change. He didn't want the process to change. He, he wanted me to sweat as hard as possible to earn my nine dollars an hour or whatever it was, and uh, eventually I got fired. Even though I was doing a great job, he didn't because I didn't seem stressed out uh, and I wasn't following these very inefficient rules. I got fired. Okay. Now later, uh, I ended up working in restaurants because uh, I grew up as a townie in the Hamptons. For people unfamiliar with it, it's kind of uh, like the Great Gatsby. Uh, you it's a have, resort town these days. Yeah, it's a resort town. You have the haves and the have-nots, and as a as a have-not, uh, I could make the most money as a busboy or waiter during the summer months. That was that was big money to me at the time, and I ended up working at a place called Maidstone Arms, and uh, we had to wear pink pink collared shirts and bow ties. <laughs> and it came uh, out of your paycheck, right? Oh yeah, that was I had to buy that. Money. So annoying. And. Uh, there were uh, what I realized, and that, the, the reason I bring that up was I had all these experiences with uh, the old money folks were actually fine because they were kind of over the fact that they had money. They didn't wear it like some kind of badge of privilege. But you had the, these people who had, say, newly inherited money or were married to people who had money who felt very, very entitled, and they were the bane of our existence. Uh, <laughs> and, I, and I remember a couple of examples I won't go into right now, but the opposite, the counterexample, I remember was uh, Billy Joel used to come in, and I think it was maybe once a week, at least on my shifts, and he would get coffee and read the newspaper, and that's all he would do. And uh, this, I wish I could remember his name. I want to say it was Gavin, but I might be making that up. This waiter who said, "You know what? For this one, I'm going to let you. I'm going to let you wait the table." And because he could see I was really excited and nervous by the fact that Billy Joel was in the restaurant, and he let me go over and attempt to <laughs> to wait the table. And uh, Billy Joel was so amazingly kind and understanding. I was a nervous wreck. I was, you know, fumbling all my words. And uh, and then I went back into the kitchen, and I, I remember thinking, like, God, I have to ask him an interesting question. I have to ask him an interesting question. So I asked him how he met Christy Brinkley the next time I went out to give him his coffee, and he gave me this like very calm, long story. He wasn't rushed at all. And I just remember thinking that I want to be that self-made man. I, like he he had earned it, and he didn't put himself on a pedestal, and that was my only interaction with him, of course. But I was just so impressed that he, someone who had probably ten to a hundred times as much money as these other people who were such miserable wretches and so unkind to people, and he was he was very very gracious. So that was that was kind of point number two, and then 
the very the, the last one I'll mention is in college I had been working for again eight or nine dollars an hour in the the, uh, the I think it was called the guest library it was this sort of attic library it was so horribly hot and uh, I was listening to all of these self help books and reading all these self help books to try to figure out how to get to that Billy Joel point and. Uh, and, uh, I put together a seminar, which was based on speed reading and accelerated learning and, and put it together based on stuff that I had learned for my own use, uh, in high school and college and, uh, put it together and I couldn't afford to rent a space. So I used a, uh, a, uh, basically a, a childcare room at a, at a church when it was off service. So it was full of like easels and and chalkboards and crayons and whatnot. I mean, it was a romper room. <laughs> and uh, I had thir- about 30 people show up at $50 a pop for three hours. And I remember leaving that seminar with just like pockets full of 20s and <laughs> pockets full of of checks and uh, they could they wouldn't fit in my pocket. So I had to hold, like pin these handfuls of bills to the uh, the grips on my bike and ride it to <laughs> PNC Bank to deposit it as quickly as possible. It was the most money I'd ever seen in my life. Certainly held in my hand as whatever it was, you know, fifteen hundred bucks. And that just showed me that it, it proved to me that it was possible. Mm-hmm. That it was that it was possible to just pull something like that off and and make people happy. I mean, I had an incredible uh, guarantee, and people were thrilled with it. I mean, I went kind of above and beyond. And, uh, I was able to replicate that. And so I think, but that first time riding to the bank, you just smiling ear to ear, realizing like, I do not have to have my time necessarily correlate to some low per hour rate. Like I don't have to go from eight to 10 to 15 to 20. You can go from $8 an hour to $1,500 an hour or a thousand dollars an hour if you structure it the right way. Um, so those were, those were a few that come to mind. Is Snowflake still around? Uh, Snowflake is not still around. Hmm. Uh, it went out of business, and oh. so you know, you, so you can you can you can read into that. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. Uh, Snowflake Snowflake went out of business, and <laughs> it's it's been replaced by some type of sort of lobster and crab seafood place. Uh, I think it's Boswick's or Bosworth's, something like that in Amagansett. I so, I, if anyone wants to yeah. see the relic, what is replaced <laughs> the uh, the footprint that used to be Snowflake, then uh, that's where you can find it. I ask this of all my guests, Tim, what is your financial philosophy? Do you have a money mantra that maybe it's conscious or even subconscious, but upon reflection, yeah, it turns out you do have kind of a way of thinking when it comes to money. Uh, what, it could be what, well, related think, to how you spend, we, invest, we, or earn. Yeah, I think we all do, whether it's explicit or not, right? So we, we have sort of conscious philosophies or subconscious philosophies and behaviors. So my my conscious beliefs and sort of frameworks around money finances would be uh, number one, uh, in the purpose of investing is to improve your quality of life. It's not to, it's the, the intermediate step is achieving a reasonable or aggressive rate of return. But the, the ultimate objective of investing is allocating resources to improve your quality of life. And the reason it's important for me at least to define it that way is that not all forms of investing are suitable for all people in the same way that not all sports are suitable for all people. 
some people are daredevils and they love base jumping and whatnot, but they can't stand the tedium of, say, like table tennis. Other people are the exact opposite. They find table tennis incredible. For me personally, uh, I've been very successful uh, in the public markets, investing in, in, in publicly traded stocks and equities, for instance, but it turns me into an anxiety-ridden lunatic where with incredible sort of massive depressive swings depending on what's happening that day and what the cover of the Wall Street Journal says and so on. So I've learned for myself that even if I achieve a high rate of return in a publicly traded stock, it is a bad investment. Why? Because it decreases my quality of life. Even though I'm making money, I'm miserable doing so. I'm worse off than when I started. And uh, for that reason, uh, I've, I've found, for instance, angel investing. I've, I've had a lot of success in, in angel investing with Uber, Evernote, Twitter, Facebook, a lot, of, a lot of startup companies, because it's a binary decision for me where I do my homework, I do a ton of due diligence, I make an investment or I don't, and then I live with that decision until there's an exit or a failure, basically. And because I can't, it, it's, it's, there's no use to uh, second-guessing myself. I have lower stress <laughs> about these all-or-nothing binary bets than I do about putting <laughs> a small amount of money into a stock that I can watch jump around on a daily or weekly basis. Uh, so number one is investment. investing. Good investing improves your quality of life. And that's investment of capital. That's investment of time. Uh, that's investment of attention, for instance. The, the second thing I would say is that uh, I am a huge proponent of Stoic philosophy, specifically Seneca the Younger. There's a great mm -hmm. book called Letters from a Stoic. Uh, you, can, you can actually find, if you look for moral letters of Seneca, you can find it as a uh, public domain. And uh, I'll actually be producing uh, audiobooks. They're almost finished for all of them. Uh, and the reason being that I, I find Stoicism, particularly as, uh, as proposed and described by, by Seneca, to be very, very useful in high-stress environments as sort of an operating system for making decisions. And, and how does this relate to money? Well, Seneca would say, and of course this is not in the original language, but paraphrasing, uh, that you should learn to value only those things that cannot be taken away. And one of the ways that you can go about that is by having a low burn lifestyle uh, to the extent possible. And for instance, uh, I recently, literally a week ago, had my Volkswagen Golf give up the ghost, just died. You know, the gearbox basically exploded. And I had had that used Golf, I bought it used in 2004. So I'd had that car for 10 years, and in San Francisco, it gets scratched, had a homeless guy rip off the antenna, and I didn't care. I wasn't attached to it. And I think that if you can control some of these vanity investments to the extent possible, uh, you, you realize that you can make seemingly terrifying decisions. You can leave your job. You can start that company. Uh, you can maybe do both at once, like, uh, or you could keep your job, rather, and moonlight as an entrepreneur. And that the worst case scenario is not that bad. So practicing poverty is also very useful where you would allocate a few days or a week, say, per quarter, per month, where you spend, say, $10 a day or $5 a day on food. It's like, okay, you eat rice and beans and you realize even if I take the leap, I end that relationship, I start that job, whatever, and I end up having to sustain myself on a fraction of my current income for a period of time, it's not that bad. I can weather that storm. And by rehearsing the worst case scenario, it gives you uh, courage and confidence 
to try things you would otherwise not try. Right. It gives you perspective. And this actually reminds me of something that Tony Robbins once said. I actually went to his Unleash the Power Within event in New Jersey. Have you ever gone to one of these, Tim? I haven't, but I would. It's amazing. Uh, I, I mean, I, I just kind of went I'm very to... impressed by Tony. I'm yes, yes. Uh, it's, it's, you got to go. And but one of the things he said was that success without fulfillment is failure. And I want to transition now to talking a little bit about your definition of failure. And personally, what is a personal financial or business failure that you experienced that from there, um, you know, you were able to ultimately turn that into a, a, a really viable, teachable experience for yourself? Financial failure. Um, well, the first one that comes to mind is an entrepreneurial one. I've lost money on trades and 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 so on before as well. We can talk about that if you if you'd like. But the first one is is an entrepreneurial example. Uh, so co- right on the heels of my seminar, the speed reading seminar, I, I thought, well, this is great. But what would he, what would be even better is if I didn't need to be uh, physically located at a seminar to give each and every seminar. So there are different ways to skin that cat. I could hire people, I could try to create some type of franchising model, but I decided I wanted to have a physical product. So I'd create an audio book that would teach people, uh, it was called How I Beat the Ivy League. Uh, and uh, it was about how to, <laughs> how to optimize your college applications to get into schools where perhaps based on your track record, your, your report card or your SATs, you shouldn't be able to get in because I was, I, I, I attended uh, Princeton undergraduate, but my, I flubbed my SATs. I, I really screwed them up and was you know, a, a couple of hundred points below the sort of median <laughs> for people accepted. And so I put together this audiobook and I was convinced it would sell itself, spent a ton of time on it. Uh, took the vast majority of my savings and invested in having, I don't know, 500 or 1,000 tapes produced and and proceeded to sell exactly, I think, two of them. Uh, one to my mom, uh, which I found out kind of after the fact. Mm-hmm. And the, the lesson I learned there, there were two big lessons. The first was uh, you should not make a product and then find your market. You should choose your market and then make your product, if that makes sense. You should know exactly who you're making something for uh, and not get stuck as a lot of engineers do, creating something with a bunch of features and then attempting to figure out who you're going to sell it to. So do, I, I, I approached it in exactly the opposite way if I wanted to minimize risk. Second was I produced uh, and paid for you know, whatever it was, 500 to 1,000 tapes, because I was seduced by the lower per unit cost, and that's really, really, really dangerous. Uh, what I should have done is paid you know three or four times the per tape cost, even if I lost money on a per tape basis in the beginning, so that I didn't have such a huge capital investment right up front. And if I had been even smarter in this day and age, what I would have done is used something like Lead Pages or Unbounce, one of these tools online, to create a landing page and test the offer before I even made the audiobook. Uh, and uh, it's, it's never been easier to do that type of testing, but those are the first two, the first two that come to mind. Well, let's flip it now. Let's talk about your, your so money moment. I, I, you've had so many financial and business and career wins, but if there was one that you are particularly proud of that maybe you don't get to talk to talk about that often, maybe it's not something that the public sees. I'd love to hear that. Sure. Uh, 
the, the first that comes to mind, I mean, there are startups that have done really well, like some of those I, I mentioned, but I want to try to provide an answer that might be actionable or helpful to people who are not involved with startups. Uh, the start, the, I became involved in startups, uh, or the way I approached it, I think, is the way you could approach different types of investing, and that is as education. So this should sound somewhat familiar. It's, it's actually comparable to what I did with the nonprofits to develop my network. Uh, I had fantasized after graduating from, from college and moving to Silicon Valley about going to Stanford. I had this, this somewhat exaggerated uh, pie-in-the-sky image of Stanford in my head. It just held this very vaunted position in my mind. And I fantasized about going to business school there and uh, had gone about you know halfway or three-quarters through the application process twice at one point. And I just realized, you know, I'm not going to do this. It doesn't make sense for me as romanticized as Stanford is in my head. But I was spending time with a friend of mine who was an, an angel investor and now a very, uh, very uh, successful venture capitalist named Mike Maples. And I decided that I would take the amount of money. And this, this amount could be, could be far less for, for people who want to explore this type of thinking. But I, I decided that I would take what I would have spent on Stanford Business School, which is very expensive, it would have been about $120,000 for two years uh, at the time, that I would take that amount of money and I would allocate it to investing in startups and that I would assume I would lose all of that money. In other words, I wouldn't recoup any of it, but that in the process of reviewing all the deals, looking at all the companies, meeting with all the founders, looking at their successes or failures, that that 120000 over two years, you know, the Tim Ferriss educational fund <laughs> would, would teach me lessons that would allow me to earn that back many times over after those two years. And, uh, it, it worked out. I mean, it worked out in so much as not only did I learn many, many, many lessons that later helped me to sell my own company, for instance, because I realized it wasn't as hard as I was making it out to be in my head that, um, I didn't lose all my money. I had a few successes and I was able to identify what I was good at, what I was bad at. Uh, but even if I had lost that money over two years, I would have come away with learnings that then, like I said, allowed me to sell my own company and make back much more than that. Right. Um, so viewing, you know, having a, an educational allocation in your budget for learning about investing, I think is very important so that you're you're able to develop good process. And I think in the world of investing, a lot of people, you can have a terrible process, you can make a great investment for all the wrong reasons, and you don't want to you don't want to develop the habit of rewarding that because ultimately you'll lose you can lose it all. Exactly. Um, and so and similarly though, if you have really good process and you have a bad outcome, you shouldn't beat yourself up. You shouldn't beat yourself up over it. I mean, if you made the best decision you could with the all the information that you had and could get a hold of at the time, that should be rewarded. If if it is a good process uh, and net net over time, you're going to be successful. So th that's one of the biggest challenges in investing of any type is making sure that you reward, you focus on process over mm -hmm. outcome to the extent possible. And I think having small amount of money or uh, in 120k to me at the time, don't get me wrong, was a very significant chunk of money. But I was thinking of spending it anyway on business school. Um, that's how I justified it. Well, this sort of dovetails this question that I got from a listener. I asked my um, my listeners, "What would you ask Tim Ferriss?" And I, I have a really good question from a, a listener named Brian, 
Thanks, Brian, for sending me in your question. He wants to know, Tim, what business would you create right now, given your you know, dec- 15 years of experience? Work? He said he read the four-hour work week in its first printing, but he was never able to get traction with anything that he chose. He's in a stable work situation, so he's making money, uh, and he has enough free time and capital to start an online business. What would you say to him? I would say, and I, I get questions like this I'm a sure, lot, yeah. as you can imagine. You know, if you were starting over and only had five hundred dollars, how would you make ten thousand dollars in the next month? <laughs> I get, I get a lot of, and I'm, and I'm not saying that to disregard his question. I will answer it, but it's my recommendation would be to, uh, to number one, uh, the four-hour workweek muse sections are helpful. You could certainly go to my blog and look at muse examples. I think that's, some people are are inductive and other people are deductive. And I feel like uh, many people will come up with better ideas if they just review a bunch of examples, as opposed to me saying, here are the principles, go create your own examples. So if if you go to, you know, fourhourblog.com and just look at the muse example category, all of it's free, uh, I think that could be very helpful. A, A few other resources, and then I'll tell you why I'm giving these resources is not one pat answer. Uh, the 22 Immutable Laws of Marketing, I think, is very helpful for thinking about positioning. And then uh, lastly, I think that oftentimes people who do not uh, – people who don't find a business idea that gets traction don't get traction because they don't really test. They don't have a handful of ideas to test. They have one idea. And – that is a very slow and resource-intensive way to go about doing things. If you're going to test one idea, it only takes perhaps 10% more energy to test three or four ideas. And uh, there's, a, there's a competition going on, um, at least at that time of this conversation, uh, through Shopify. So if, if people go to shopify.com forward slash Tim, they can see it. But it's an opportunity to get resources. They have, they have free articles, even if you don't join it, for uh, choosing your product or service, right? So how to choose your product. And they, they walk through some of the methods that are very up to date on how people do research and analysis to choose a product. But it is fundamentally a very, very personal decision. I can't say hmm. Bitcoin's really hot right now. You should do A, B, and C. Or everything's moving to virtual reality. You should do D, E, and F. Uh, that would be irresponsible of me because coming back to one of the lessons that I mentioned, you have to choose your market first and then your product. And the way you choose your market is by identifying what demographics, what psychographics you understand intimately. And very oftentimes, at least for me, that's a demographic that I belong to. And when I wrote The 4-Hour Workweek, I knew I was writing for two very specific friends of mine. That's how I wrote the book. And they were both in the, let's just say, 20 to 35-year-old tech-savvy male demographic. And it doesn't mean that the book is only for those people. Uh, the target, and I, don't, I can't recall who said this, but you know, the, target, the initial target is not the market. All right? uh, and, and my audience is now almost a 50-50 split. But in the beginning, you have to know who you are selling to. And if everyone is your customer, then no one is your customer, and you will waste all of your money. So the short answer is you need to decide who you are targeting, who are your thousand dream customers, what do they read, what do they eat, what do they watch, what does their day look like, what kind of jobs do they have, what kind of cars do they drive, if any, et cetera, et cetera. And then, and only then, will you be able to say, go onto Facebook 
and thin slice it and try to run test advertisements for $100 or $200 instead of saying, this widget will sell itself, let me blow all of my savings on one remnant ad in USA Today. That is a bad way to go about things. Um, so that's uh, perhaps a, a longer answer than expected, but it's a very, very personal decision and uh, you have to play to your strengths and you need to decide on your market, you know, your, your 100 or 1,000 ideal customers first. And this person has the luxury of having a job right now. So you have income coming in. You probably have your nights free or your weekends free. Optimal time to be really researching this. And uh, thanks for that responsible answer, Tim. That was, that was uh, I like that answer. Yeah, my pleasure. And it's not just a responsible answer. It is a risk mitigating answer. Mm -hmm. And I think that people have a vision in their heads oftentimes of entrepreneurship as this wild west, uh, throw caution to the wind you know, jump off the cliff and learn to fly on the way down type of activity. And I don't view it that way at all. I'm very, very conservative and I'm all about minimizing risk and downside. Uh, Richard Branson would say the same thing. Um, so the, I always recommend when people say have a job, like you said, that is when you test for a potential business of your own. You don't quit your job and then hope to figure it out. That, that is a very dangerous way to go about playing the game. So we're almost wrapped here, Tim, and in my pursuit of getting guests to deliver non-obvious answers, something that you strive to do as well with your podcast, uh, I've got a number of rapid sentences that I'd like you to finish. Sure. A hypothetical. If you had infinite money, let's say you won the Powerball tomorrow, what would be the first thing you would do? Uh, first thing I would do is hire someone to help me invest in world-changing startups. What is, okay, the one expense that makes my life easier or better is? Paying for wash and fold laundry and <laughs> uh, house cleaning. When did you start outsourcing that? Was it previous to four-hour work week? A lot of people on my show ask about outsourcing, and some are on the fence about it because they don't think it's worth their their money. Do you have a formula for figuring out like when it's worth it to outsource those kinds uh, of things? Yeah, the general the general formula is you take your if you if you assume that you work forty hours a week roughly, you can take your annual income. Let's say it's fifty thousand um, dollars. You chop the fir the last three zeros off. So you end up with 50. You cut that in half. That's 25. That's how much you make per hour. You make $25 an hour. So if you can hire someone for you know, $5 an hour or $10 an hour to do something you hate or that consumes a ton of your time or half of your weekend, then that is very oftentimes a very smart decision, a very smart calculus. And uh, if you look at – it is almost impossible to find anyone who has made millions of dollars who doesn't delegate – at least a handful of time-consuming things in some fashion. Uh, and, and, and by outsourcing, I think it's oftentimes helpful to think of it as delegating because outsourcing conjures images of uh, you know, a huge call center in like Bangalore or something like that. <laughs> but it could be as simple as using... Uh, TaskRabbit. TaskRabbit or Uber instead of buying a car and paying for insurance every month. Or uh, something like Zirtual, which is actually U.S.-based... Uh, virtual assistants based out of Las Vegas, which is, is quite good. So that's, that's my general approach. 
My biggest guilty pleasure that I spend a lot of money on, probably too much, but it makes my life better, which I, besides the laundry outsourcing, but this is like a bigger, <laughs> bigger expense that uh, is very, is very Tim Ferriss of you. <laughs> the laundry's not expensive, as a side note. Um, right. That, for me to buy a washer and dryer and uh, then the, the add on top of that the value of my time, it's, it's for the cost of buying a washer and dryer, I can get my laundry done for pro- probably several years. Uh, the, uh, the guilty pleasure, uh, I tend to reward myself if I finish books. Uh, I'm very tough on myself. Uh, but when I, f- uh, I have two Jap- antique Japanese saddles, uh, and, um, I bore, I, I, I bought these saddles after having experience with Japanese horseback archery, uh, called Yabusame in Japan. If people want to see me attempt that they can just google it and find it online it's insane and extremely dangerous uh but after that experience and i have this long standing love affair with japan having been there as an exchange student uh i for the very first time in my life bought these two saddles at auction uh these 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 probably from the 1700s or 1800s two antique japanese saddles those would be two guilty pleasures of mine and i did not know that I don't think many people do. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, I don't. Not something I talk about really. Uh, but they're 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 worth several times more than the uh, POS uh, Volkswagen Golf that just bit the dust. Did you buy them with the hopes that you would sell them later and make money, or was it just no, something that zero. you really? Yeah. No, not at all. And this comes back to the investment. Mm-hmm. There, there are many different ways to get a return on investment. For me, it's a quality of life. It's a trigger. It's a visual trigger in my home, in my primary environment, that elicits positive emotions and optimism. And if you were to look at everything in my house, it is very, very tightly curated because I, I moved about a year ago and got rid of probably 75% of my stuff. Everything is very, very carefully curated to elicit the type of emotions and optimism or ambition that I want to have. When I donate, I like to give to blank because... When I donate, I like to donate appreciated stock for a lot of tax reasons, uh, but also cash, to DonorsChoose.org or other educational-focused nonprofits because I feel that education is the root of almost all of our problems and all of our solutions. So if we can create... If we can create problem solvers, not just throw money at Band-Aid solutions to problems, I think we'll all be better off. So DonorsChoose.org, uh, which I also advise, is is where I donate quite a lot of money. Wonderful. And finally, I'm Tim Ferriss, and I'm so money because... <laughs> My guests either love or hate this question because they, yeah. they either hate bragging or you're just like so into it. So... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. I'm Tim Ferriss, and I'm so money because I view my life as a series of reversible two-week experiments. I experiment a lot, and I'm not afraid to suck. I love that so much. And I wanted to ask you earlier about that because for so many of us, we start these projects, we start these um, these goals that may be very intimidating or very cons- time-consuming. And so what do we do? We stop achieving them. We stop. We, we fail. We, um, we give up our resolutions, our goals. So what you do is you kind of give yourself a deadline, like two weeks, six months, whatever it is. But it's almost like comforting, right, to know that you have an out. Definitely. And you gather, and the point is to gather data. And there, there is no, if you, it, in the world of experimentation, 
Failure is just feedback. You have a hypothesis. I think, for instance, you know, this will do the, this will do that. X will sell Y number of units to Z type of people. Okay, I'm going to allocate two hundred dollars on Facebook to test that hypothesis. And it's not a failure if it doesn't work. You've just identified something that doesn't work, so you can move on and try something else. Uh, and I, I also I also think uh, different people are wired differently. You have to choose a system that works for you. Not everyone is the same. In my particular case, if I try to make a five-year goal or a 10-year goal, a few things happen that are very unproductive. Uh, the first is to have a reliable five- or 10-year goal, you, you almost by definition have to aim below your capability. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. To know as a, for a fact that you can accomplish th- this long chain of things for 10 years you have to aim at things you can you can very comfortably achieve. And I don't want to be comfortable. I want to stretch myself. I want to get better. The second thing is if you try to create a long-term goal, and again, this is just my personal approach. I don't think it's right for everybody. When I try to create a long-term goal, you develop tunnel vision and you ignore better opportunities that come up. So for me, uh, people ask me, like, what are you doing after the book launch? And I say, I don't know because – after the book launches, doors may open, people may present themselves, opportunities might appear that are better than anything I could possibly conceive of right now, more interesting than anything I could currently write down on a piece of paper. Uh, and I think part of the reason that I've had the success that I've had is I've been, uh, I've had these short-term experiments and I've been, I've, I've allowed opportunities to present themselves without being blinded to them by looking at this goal 10 years off in the future. It's not right for everybody, but it's the right approach for me. Well, Tim, we thank you for sharing your time with us today on the show. And just a reminder to listeners, I'm giving away five Tim Ferriss ebook bundles. Each will include an electronic copy of his three bestsellers, Four Hour Workweek, The Four Hour Body, and The Four Hour Chef. Tim, wishing you continued success with all your experimentations. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. If you'd like to learn more about Tim, subscribe to his email list, check out all of his work and his blog, head over to 4hourworkweek.com. There you can get more info on Tim's books, his blog, his podcast, and all other great things. And as always, I want to keep hearing from you. Send me your questions, your comments, head over to somoneypodcast.com, click on Ask Farnoosh, and ask away. And if you'd like to win one of the five free ebook bundles, mega blockbuster books that includes the four-hour work week, the four-hour body, and the four-hour chef, head over to somoneypodcast.com and click on Tim's podcast page where I've laid out the directions. And every week I give away a free 15-minute money session with me. And that free money session goes to one lucky reviewer on iTunes. So if you've yet to leave a review for the show on iTunes, please do. And let me know. Email me, farnoosh at somoneypodcast.com. And every Saturday I announce a winner. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. I hope your day is so money. 